Blog Talk Radio. This is Creativity and Play. I'm Steve Balberg. And I'm Mary Alice Long. You can find us online at creativityandplay.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Creativity Play and download archived editions on iTunes. Our guest today on Creativity and Play is artist Lily A. Lily founded the Village of Arts and Humanities in North Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, which she led from 1986 to 2004. That organization has served more than 10,000 low-income, primarily African-American youth and families each year, covering several neighborhoods within a 260-square-block area of North Philadelphia. In 2003, her work at the Village of Arts and Humanities was recognized with the Ford Foundation's Leadership for a Changing World Award. In 2002, Lilly launched Barefoot Artists, which aims to bring the transformative power of art to impoverished communities in the world. She leads participatory projects that foster community empowerment, improve the physical environment, promote economic development, and preserve and advance indigenous art and culture. She has carried out these projects in the U.S. as well as Kenya, Rwanda, Syria, China, Haiti, and Palestine. Lily's latest book is Awakening Creativity, Dandelion School Blossoms, which Terry Tempest Williams says is a radical manifesto for social change through art. Lily Yeh, welcome to Creativity and Play. Thank you for inviting me. Happy to be here. Well, it's very great to have you here. And first of all, all I can say is, wow. <laughs> you, you've done just a tremendous amount of work um, using art as a way to engage people all over the world in all kinds of situations, but I think in the process to, as we were just saying before we started talking here, to bring joy to people, to change communities. Can you talk a little bit about how how you got into that? I, I, I presume you probably started doing a lot of very personal, independent, just private art by yourself early in your life, and how did you bring that into what you do now in communities? In, right. in a very significant way. Oh, yeah, right. I, I have been very lucky. I think before I started the community-based work, um, I have been teaching. Um, I taught at the University of the Arts for uh, near three decades and uh, showed in galleries and things, you know, the norm, what the, an artist do. Um, and then I felt... Um, something is missing in my life. I felt that I couldn't quite throw totally myself into my work, and I was searching. I think um, at a certain point of our life, we search for really question the meaning of our life, the meaning of our existence, and also our identity. And so um, eventually, um, that's a, and especially if you're an immigrant or even you were born in this country, I think we we search for answers. And then so opportunity brought me to 
um, a, an abandoned lot in inner city North Philadelphia. That was in 1986. I was invited by um, an um, African American dancer, um, late Arthur Hall, a wonderful artist. And so um, that really kind of began, and I went in very reluctantly. Um, but the experience of working with people there, the community, um, adults, especially children, it, it was had, had such a huge impact on me and uh, it haunted me for a year <laughs> and then I realized that this so-called the bad land actually is a treasure land for me and I decided to um, to go back and the more I I I worked in the place and have uh, worked with people transforming the place. The more I learned how powerful is the meat of this vehicle of art in changing environment and people and community, and that's how 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 it all started in 1986. I appreciate those words that you use as you were speaking about your beginning experience leading to what sounds like an, a beautiful, passionate, playful life um, in serving yourself, your own um, artistic flair, and also uh, many, many others. Very inspiring, Lily. And, um, and the words that I heard were reluctance and bad that led to a treasure trove and... Um, <laughs> And true uh, connection with people, and what I was saying before the interview was um, how much I appreciate all the smiles on the Barefoot Artist website, including your own. So I wonder, um, with all of that, how um, how does your work and it with the arts it, internationally? How does that impact um, something called community empowerment? What mm. is community empowerment, and how does that mm. how does that create mm. positive change? Mm. Okay, um, to begin with, I love to be on your show because the name of creativity and play, and I think. Um, my experience with creativity is so connected with joyful um, and playfulness, and. Um, the, the, like when I first went in, I have l no concept about like uh, you know empowering people. I never thought that, that I had that ability. I went in because there is this. Um, I want to find out who I who I am, who I was, who I am, and then there is this opportunity, abandoned land, and then nobody took me seriously. Nobody believed in it, uh, and I had no idea what could be done, but. I was giving a little grant by the Pennsylvania Council on the Arts. Everybody say, well, you can't do it. It's too little money. You're outsider, blah, blah, blah. You should do a feasibility study and forget about doing it because you can't. <laughs> and then I was about to do that, but my heart spoke to me that I really must rise to the occasion. And so I went in. And then I have no idea how do you build it, what do you build in an abandoned lot with so with a little bit of money. And then I thought, well, maybe there are a lot of children, and maybe uh, we can do something with Jojo, who is the first person 
kind of I um I asked for his help and he finally um agreed. And then the children came and because nobody was watching. You you see this project is really like an yin and yang project. What really gave me the courage to go in was that from the Taoist teaching um, when I was growing up, um, I learned that the darkest place is the most ready for transformation. And I thought that this abandoned land, we all thought it's bad and, and, and crime-ridden and no resource and so forth, maybe it's most ready for transformation. But I have no idea what that is. And then, because of the children, came to help us. And children cannot help themselves but be joyful, especially if you give them shovel and spades and let them just poke around and do whatever and making sculpture, you know, throwing the cement pie. And so, man, how happy <laughs> and doing paint and so. And then, because nobody is watching us because this is like in the trenches and the dark forsaken places, and we got the freedom to explore, to make mistakes. Because we have little money, so we learned how to recycle. So all that deficit became our strength for us to find out who we are, how we could make together, and through mistake become, we become stronger. So when the world notices us, we have an identity, we have a shape, and we find out the joyful way to work together. And how that, that is the beginning of community changing. That's such a great uh, image to... Uh find a joyful way to work together is the start of all of this. Uh, one of these projects um, uh, more recently that your your new book, Awakening Creativity, is based on is, is in um, Beijing, China, yeah. and uh, where you worked with middle school students and teachers and the elders in the community in a converting a barren factory space um, into a, a community space in a school. And can, can you talk a little bit about that project particularly and, and then why why you chose that project to actually share in your new book, Awakening Creativity, which back to what Mary Alice was saying about the great photographs, the book is full of many great, colorful photographs that document the artwork created and the people involved in that project in China. So so why that project for this book, and, and what what's the project about? Yeah, okay. I, I think um, if we really keep our heart open, keep our mind open, and keep on searching. I uh, I am always searching. And then somehow um, the project and the person find each other. For example, the reason I want to do school is because I worked in the at the Village of Arts and Humanities in the inner city for 18 years. I worked with many public schools, um, elementary schools, and uh, um, high high school middle in high schools, and I discovered that a lot of time, um, student didn't can engage in what we want them to learn for whatever reason. And the teachers spend a lot of time disciplining the children. I mean, to the degree that, you know, they, they have to go through the metal detective um, gates and so forth. 
So I said, well, and usually the public school has a certain look. You know, school is institutional, a lot of um, um, cement and uh, tarred surfaces. So for a long time, I said, there must be a way to transform this kind of uh, disciplinary or the students' rebellious negative energy into a joyful, creative um, energy in transforming their school. And when I do art, I usually want to also to create an environment. Otherwise, the public art serves whatever the architecture or the dominant um, you know, dominant um, building uh, speaks. And I want to talk about, when I do art, I really want to talk about certain kind of value that is inclusive and that is nurturing, that is joyful, inspiring, and open educational. And so this is why I want to transform a substantial part of the environment to make that come through. And I couldn't um, find a partner in this country. And so when I opportunity came in uh, Beijing, the principal saw my presentation and went to the village of art and humanity, uh, arts and humanity, and uh, and saw um, that uh, saw what the village um, of art and humanity looks like. So when he, she went back to China in um, the outskirts of Beijing, in a highly in- polluted industrial area, that's where the poor people live, and she wanted to create a school for migrant children who would have no opportunity go to go to a high school. And uh, so she wanted to serve the, the poorest um, in the Beijing neighborhood. Um, so, And uh, she could only afford to find an abandoned factory. So she mended the roof, painted the walls, and so forth, and invited me to join her work. And so I started in 2004. And when I visited the school for the first time, my heart just sank because everything is gray. The sky is gray. The air is gray. And the whole environment is gray. And I said, there must be a way to bring some color. And, uh, and I thought, yes, art would be great. But it would not make sense if artists from 1,000 miles away to design for them. And the art I want to do is engage the whole school, every person, teachers, especially school uh, students and staff and volunteers, 670 people, all engage oh. in a process of transforming their environment. And the way to do it is to awaken everybody's creativity and participate. And that's how eventually, after five years, is the completion of the um, Dandelion School, and uh, I wrote it in the book so other people can consult the methodology. Wonderful. I am listening to what your your story of the creation of the, first of all, leading you into uh, Beijing and then the creation of this new book that you have. And I'm thinking, wow, you're you really went from small to big, Lily. And I it it brings me to this question that I uh, came up with as I was exploring about your um, 
playful and creative work and how you are also tending to try to preserve and advance indigenous art and culture. Uh, yes. So I think Very it's so important because that is also big, but in the long and longevity and going back into the collective. And oh, okay. so I wonder how you how you're doing that. Okay. That sounds to very give thin. an example of the Dandelion School, since we're talking about the book and it's carefully documented in the book, well, I think it, we are all aware of the the danger of the destruction of ecological system in in nature and i think um parallel to that is the the ecological destruction of our cultures diversity of cultures and so for me being chinese and being um I just feel so happy to be able to do something to for the land that i that i i was born in and uh, and in china especially this is a the period of tremendous change so they um the like you have about 150 million people on the move from the countryside to the cities from the um, remote areas to the coastal lines. It's one of the biggest migration in human history. And China in the last 30 years, when it, it, I mean, still going through this huge um, cultural change, cultural uh, transformation. And so from a collective communistic system, it's moved to the capitalistic economic system. And then also the onslaught, the trend, the coming in of um, Western, Western culture, commercial culture, and world culture. And, and it, it, in a way, it's almost frightening because when they they need to build so many cities in such a short time so there's the wholesale transportation of a western um, cityscape and I said wow what does it mean to be Chinese at this critical time? And where is our culture? And what is our contribution? Now, this um, really parallel in the migrant situations. They are plucked away from their countryside home, especially the children. They left their homeland and their 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 country homes, which which they love very much, and especially the people who nurtured them, raised them, while their parents left them behind and go to the city to find works. So suddenly they were thrown into the um, this alien city where they are not particularly welcomed, and then they find um, little support and so forth. So I said, when we do art, what can we do in addition to bring color and, uh, and the beautiful forms and whatever, what can we do that nurtures them deep in their heart, in their soul, their emotion, that to reconnect them to the things they have left behind? And I thought Chinese folk art, they were created by the peasant folks. They are, they are a reservoir of, of, of images and stories and uh, hybrid beings that were dispelled from the Chinese mainstream art for, for, for centuries. But folk art is this huge reservoir, treasure house of um, thousands of years of Chinese history. And it's still being 
celebrated and used in the uh, in the countryside. The, the the peasant folks they still do paper cutting. They decorate their homes homes. They put guardian figures during Chinese New Year's and so on and so forth. And I said. What's better to ensure in this time of huge transformation the value of Chinese folk art and to comfort the, the, the people, the migrant workers, especially their children, and to root themselves in this rich reservoir of life and of culture and of richness um, by creating art inspired by Chinese folk art and, uh, and also by um, their personal imagination and creativity of each student. And together we create this really wonderful series of murals and mosaics and that celebrate um, the, the, their own creativity collectively, the, the creativity of the students, and more that root them in the tree of life of the traditional um, Chinese folk art. That's how we preserve and make new meaning of the traditional art, make them blossom um, towards 21st century, and, and find meaning, identity, of what contemporary Chinese means. Yes. The, uh, another one of your projects that I think really picks up on what you were just describing, and, and, and particularly this idea of preserving um, the, the, the culture in a given place, is the project you did in Rwanda, the Rwanda Healing Project. And um, for those listeners who are looking for more information about your work, I think I first came across your work a few years ago through your presentation at the Bioneers Conference. And um, I know that that video is still available online. And, and clearly our listeners, I think, will hear the passion in, in you when you describe the work that you're doing and the people you work with. And, and the, the Bioneers video is great because you not only hear the passion we hear today, but you also see the pictures of the projects you're talking about as you describe them. So I, I certainly recommend people to go find that video on your website on barefootartist.org and, and look at that. But one of the projects you describe in that and also on your website is, is the Rwanda project. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that from coming out of the genocide period in, in that country and how transformation happened through the the art and creativity and imagination you engaged with them. Right, right. Um, I just want to give, provide the link if people are interested. Uh, interested. There is a film um, called The Barefoot Artist. It's about my life and my work. It's in the making. It will be finished by the spring, um, by May next year. And there is a trailer, very powerful trailer, about the uh, the memorial Genocide Memorial that I we I designed and built under Barefoot Artists, um, and how people are using it to remember the dead. And if you go on www.barefootartistfilm, I'm sorry, barefootartistmovie.com, then you can see the film, the trailer of this documentary film. Now, about the Barefoot, I mean, about the Rwanda project, that is one of the most powerful projects I have done, most deep, most um, profound, because of the devastating, devastation of genocide. 
um, happened there. And how it happened was that in 2004, 2004, and I was invited to do a presentation in Barcelona, and then I was on my way to do my work in um, in Kenya in this huge um, a garbage dump community. So 2004, and then I heard um, as I heard um, a person, um, Jean Bosco Musana, talked about um, the how. Um, how much he's from Rwanda, how much his people still suffers. And so I feel moved, and I feel that I need to go there. I feel somehow responsible, and maybe 10 years later, not too late. So I went there, and he took me to see two sites. And this is a really yin and yang project because, one, he took me to see the genocide mass grave, and the other one um, in the Rugerero district. And then he took me to see the survivor's village, very grave, silent, and heavy um, atmosphere of sadness, despair. And so... But when I saw the mass grave, and I said, I, there's no beauty. It was just like an animal stall. I said, there cannot be healing if there's no beauty. And I want to bring beauty to the, to, to the genocide memorial design. And so I did, did some design. I worked with the OK by official. I brought a volunteer and raised money and came back. And in a few years' time, we built this beautiful memorial with the bone chamber. And so when every year April 7th, they would come and thousands of people walk on the street for miles and come to the memorial. They still collect the bones of the survivors and then intern them into the bone chamber. And during the memorial, they reenact the genocide um, by telling stories, by road blockade and so forth. And the most but poignant moment is when they descend into the bone chamber. They open the caskets and they look into the bones. I was there in the 15th anniversary. Many people, after even 15 years, still too much to bear. So many people collapse and hold their grief out. And when one person cries, then you hear it echoed all throughout the, um, the, the memorial site. And I said to myself, I always find, define my work as the living passionate, living, social sculpture, because it's alive. Bones are still being buried, caskets being opened. They look at the bones where it hurts the most. They bare their hearts, screamed out their grief. And I think then people came and hugged them and tell stories, and then in sharing the grief and looking at the beauty of the monument, they say that healing began at that moment, and also when they see beauty, they see dignity, and they see hope, and their loved one now can come home and rest. And that was like that. And just briefly, 
with the dead. We worked with the survivors living after several years. Now I real, we realize what the dream I had when I did at the Village of Arts and Humanity is the shared prosperity, not the prosperity of the Wall Street or the capitalism, but it's a prosperity of the people, and that's a shared prosperity and we accomplish in the survivor's village. And through, you know, starting with art, but through economic development, micro-lending, the small industry, and even water collecting, harvest, rainwater, and then the, uh, um, and even solar panel making by the survivors. So that was like the Rwanda healing project. I, I feel like we have not even scratched the surface here, but we're practically out of time and so much more to uh, talk to you about. So perhaps we can have you back again and uh, also watch for your movie that you mentioned, which again, I think you said about it uh, half a year from now or so. Yeah, barefootartistsmovie.com. Right. Thank you. Great. Well, what I, Lily, thank what you I so hear, much. Lily, is listen to the call and follow your heart. Yes, yes. So and learn as much as you can in school, in workshop, wherever, because when you follow the call, you need all the skill you can muster and then ask advice from the community people. There's a profound wisdom there and ask help from experts. They are there and willing to help when our hearts open and stay in the light. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lily, for joining us. Lily Ye is an artist and activist and author of Awakening Creativity. Our theme music is Kindergarten, composed and performed by Jonathan Batiste. You can listen to this show and previous shows again and find more information about our guests and coming shows at creativityandplay.com and find Creativity and Play on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes as well. Creativity and Play is a production of the International Center for Creativity and Imagination in partnership with the National Creativity Network. I'm Steve Dahlberg. And I'm Mary Alice Long. Thank you, Lily, for joining us. Thank you.